Well, you guys uh, know that you can text your questions in to this number during class. Love to answer any questions that you have. In this lesson, we're basically taking a tour of Israel. And we've been several places. Let me remind you where we've been. We started down south in the desert of Zin, where the Israelites wandered. We moved to the Dead Sea area. We talked about Masada and Engedi and Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. In our last lesson, we looked at two places in the Shephela, out of the desert now, into that low hills. Uh, we looked at Tel Azika in the south, and then Tel Megiddo in the north. Megiddo sitting, remember, the intersection of that Via Maris, that north-south trade route with the east-west Jezreel Valley. And we talked about how many battles have been fought there over time. Well, in this lesson, we're going to continue to move, and we're going to go on north. We're going to go up around the Sea of Galilee and into the region of Galilee. And let me give you a, a little uh, picture of this, because I want to tell you something about the Sea of Galilee. It's not a sea. It's just a big lake. And they allow fishing in the lake but not boating. But seriously, the Sea of Galilee, by our standards, is just a big lake. It's maybe two to three miles across, depending on where, and approximately 11 miles long. But this is what it looks like from one side to the other. This is a picture looking across, and on the right of this picture is the village of Capernaum, and we'll visit there in a, just a few minutes. But this is how far across it really is. You can see the other side from just about anywhere. I mean, occasionally it's a hazy day and it's a little hard, but you can see. So when you see those, hear those stories about the uh, Jesus walking out to the disciples on the sea, he can see them. He knows where they are. It's like, how did he find those guys out in the middle of the ocean? Well, no, he just looked across the lake and there they were and, and on he went. As placid as it looks, it really is subject to very violent storms. Uh, it come up very quickly and they're very violent. But the Sea of Galilee is uh, just a nourishing place for that whole region. The rainfall's good, it's fed by springs, the fishing is good. As a matter of fact, the fishing, you'll, you'll see a lot of times Jesus talking to the disciples and they're out fishing. Well, they don't fish in the middle of the lake, I mean, it's too deep. They fish early in the morning when the fish are in the shallow water near the shore. So they're casting their nets 100 yards, maybe, off, off the shore. So they're not very far off. You really could yell at them. You could call to them. And so when you kind of see that, you realize this is not some huge sea or huge ocean. This is just a big lake. Well, let's look at this region in a little more detail. This is the map I think I put on your handout. But this is the region of Galilee, up in the northern part of Israel. Most of this, by the way, the part up there in the north, you see Bethsaida in that area. From 1948, when Israel became a nation, until 1967, that was Syrian-occupied. But after the 1967 war, Israel took the Golan Heights and that region, that northern region of Galilee, and has not returned it. That's a very strategic place for them. But in our story, we're going to look at a lot of history because... There have been a lot of civilizations here, not just Israelite. But around the time of Jesus, you see Nazareth to the west on the left of your map where Jesus grew up. 
I want to give you a feel that Nazareth was a village, maybe a couple hundred people, maybe two, three hundred people, fewer than the people in this room were lived in Nazareth. These are small villages. By the way, right by Nazareth is a village of Sepphoris. Sepphoris is interesting because of some archaeology there. Sepphoris was uh, a place of rebellion in when Herod the Great died in about 4 BC. There was a rebellion in the north in Galilee. I mean, he'd been such a horrible king, they thought, hey, power vacuum, maybe we could throw off Herod's rule you know, before his heirs take over. But the Roman general Varus came in and put down this rebellion. He crucified 2,000 rebels in the city of Sepphoris. Sepphoris is only, it's less than four miles away from Nazareth. And then after they uh, crucified these rebels, they put down this rebellion, they began to make this into a more Romanized city. And so at the time of Jesus, there was a theater, a Roman theater there. There were uh, municipal buildings. So there was a lot of building projects going on. And a lot of people have theorized that Jesus and Joseph may very well have worked there during his upbringing and during his lifetime. Because you see, in those days, a carpenter didn't just work with wood. As you look around, you don't see just a ton of wood and you know, huge forests in Israel, but you see an awful lot of stone. And so a carpenter at that time would have worked with a number of things and could very well have been a stonemason as well. It's entirely possible, can't prove it, but it's entirely possible that Jesus and Joseph, or Jesus as he's older, walks to Sepphoris and has worked there in the building projects. Around the lake, you see some places that you know pretty well. Tiberias is uh, still a city that's there today. Magdala, where Mary Magdalene is from, Mary from Magdala. Then on going north, uh, Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida. And I want to talk about a few of those little villages uh, with you. Bethsaida was also just a few hundred in population, but Capernaum was a relatively big city, and you'll see Jesus doing a lot of his ministry there. Because where Bethsaida and Nazareth and Chorazin, two, three hundred people, Capernaum, maybe one or two thousand people. Now, that doesn't sound like much to you or to me, but you come from a, a little village of 100 people to 2,000 people. That looks like a big city. I mean, that's where the Walmart was. They had the Sonic and Capernaum. And, you know, so Jesus does a lot of his ministry there, and the reason is there are a lot of people there, a lot of people that he can talk to, a lot of people he can reach. He went to all these little villages, but he spent a lot of time in Capernaum. Well, let's take a look at uh, this Bethsaida and Capernaum. Bethsaida is an interesting city. You know it from the New Testament as being the hometown of Philip and Andrew and Peter. In John chapter 1, it talks about they were from this town of Bethsaida. Well, Bethsaida had been around for a long time. In the 10th century BC, this is a thousand years before the New Testament time, it was actually a principal city in the kingdom of Geshur. And that was an Aramean kingdom. Think Syria, where where the ancient Arameans lived is now Syria. And so that Syrian kingdom had a major outpost here. This on the right is a city gate. The city gate, 10th century or so city gates, about a thousand years before Christ, this is probably one of the largest and best preserved city gates in Israel. And uh, obviously you can't see the 
it's not as tall as it used to be, but you can see the spacing and the chambers and how they would have defended that gate. And right outside that gate, this little guy on the left is a cultic figure that was worshipped in that time period, not by the Israelites, but by the Syrians or the Arameans of the time. He's got kind of a, a human-style body, but he's got a, a bull head. And so as you come into the city, you would see a place where there's a shrine as you go into the city. You see that a lot. This is an active archaeological site today. There's still digging being done here at Bethsaida. But it dates back to at least a thousand years before the time of Christ. This city was destroyed by the Assyrians in 730 BC. They came sweeping through and destroyed that entire northern half of Israel, destroyed Aram or Syria, what's now Syria, and they destroyed this place. In fact, there's a layer of destruction and burn marks there from about that time period. And so you kind of see the archaeology validating the history, the biblical history and the secular history as well. In the New Testament era, uh, this area was very much uh, known for olive. It's got a big olive press there. Uh, you could grow a lot of olive trees around it. You've got the lake nearby for fishing. And interesting thing about this whole region of Galilee from the New Testament era, there are more than 30 synagogues that have been found. This is the remains of a synagogue in Capernaum. I'm going to show you Capernaum and Bethsaida, and we're going to spend a little time in the synagogue in Chorazin because there's some really great faith lessons here. But what you see on the right, look how big that is on the right, and look at the pillars that I'm standing next to, and look how nicely done they are. I mean, this is good quality work. This is from the New Testament era, a little bit after the time of Christ, but it's, it's a big, big area. All around it, and this is what you're going to see in these villages, is you'll see this really pretty good-sized synagogue. I mean, not, it's not as big as this room, but it's, it's a pretty good-sized place. And all around it, these are the remains of houses. Now, obviously, they're you're missing the, the higher elevation, but look how plain they are. None of these are palaces. They're just, uh, just like subdivisions all around the area of the synagogue. So these little villages would have uh, residential areas, but in the center would be the synagogue. The, uh, I'm going to talk to you a little more. Remember kind of how these look how it looks like you can't tell where one house ends and another house begins. Hold that thought, because I want to talk about that in a minute when we get to Chorazin, because that's the way all of these villages look. It's hard when you get in there to even know. There actually are little roads, little streets. They're not very wide, but little areas you could go. But it's very hard to tell. The, the homes are very sprawling. All these rooms look like they're connected into big compounds. This is a synagogue in Bethsaida. looks remarkably similar. But look how nice it is. You can't see the working in the stone on the top of those pillars, but you can see that it's carved and it's worked. You don't see that in the houses. Houses are, are nice. I mean, they're nice enough, I guess, not by your and my standards. You wouldn't park your car there. But basically, that's, you know, the houses were okay, but this was really well done. I mean, this, these columns were worked, the stonemasonry, everything there is pretty impressive. And that's an interesting thing because this was a prosperous region. And here's kind of a point that I want to make. It's just something that jumps out when you look at the archaeology of it and you realize, wait a minute, this is a really prosperous region. They're making olive oil and products there way more than they can use on their own. So they're exporting it. 
They've got thriving uh, farming around. This is a great fertile area. They've got the, the uh, Sea of Galilee nearby for fish. This is an affluent community. But when you look at the houses, you realize they didn't put their wealth into their houses. They put their wealth into the synagogue. The synagogue is far and away the nicest place there. Matter of fact, Laura uh, was half joking. I mean, it's a really astute observation when she said in those days, they lived in very plain houses and they had a very nice church or very nice synagogue. I mean, if you go to Europe, you're going to see just beautiful churches and kind of plain houses. And now we live in really, really nice houses and worship in really, really plain buildings. All right. Things have kind of turned around a little bit. But the thing that really jumps out at me is physically, the synagogue is the center of the town, but you can also see that economically and spiritually, the synagogue is the center of this community. And I'll tell you why in a minute. I'll tell you why some other things that went on in the synagogue, obviously worship, but more than worship happened there. But here's just an interesting thought for you. We tend to think about God being a priority in our life, and we need to make sure we put God first in our life. And God needs to be first among our priorities. And that's, that's not a bad thought, but it misses the mark just a little bit. Because God doesn't want to be the first priority in your life. God wants to be the center of your life. Think of it more in terms of geography than in terms of my to-do list or my priorities. That's a very Western and modern way of thinking, is I'm going to prioritize how I spend my money, how I spend my time, what my uh, goals in life are. I'm going to make a list of priorities. This is a little different idea. When you see it there and you see all those houses surrounding the center of their community and God is at the center of this community. So when you think about your family priorities, it's good to put God first. I'm not telling you that's a bad thing, but I think a more accurate thing would be, is God at the center of our families? Is God at the center of our lives? Does my life revolve around God, or is he just one of the many things in my life? He's the first thing, but he's just one of many things. When we get to the last site in this lesson, I want you to remember this thought because I want to show you a really different way of thinking about it. And it's the dilemma that we face today. But in these Jewish villages, the synagogue, God is at the center of their lives and at the center of their communities. That's not true in our culture today. And there were competition for that idea even then. Well, let's go and look at a little different idea. I want to explore this idea of God being the center and the synagogue being the center because every one of these villages looks exactly like that. Let's go to Chorazin. Chorazin is a, a village at the time where Jesus spent some time. It's one of the, he didn't have such kind things to say. I think some of the people there were kind of dismissive of the miracles, but he spent time there and he spent time teaching in all these synagogues, by the way. Jesus would have taught in all these synagogues, and I'll show you what I mean about that in a minute. But in uh, Chorazin, again, another big, beautiful synagogue, and all around it are these houses. So I want to talk to you about what the community looked like. You're familiar with the idea of, in ancient times, it's called the insula. An insula is a family gathering or a family compound. You remember the story about the young man who wants to marry 
young girl and they get betrothed and so he goes home and he begins adding a room onto the family house. And that's exactly what those ruins look like. That's why it's like all these, house, all these rooms are connected. I mean, this house is kind of sprawling and it got added onto that way over time. So he would come back and he and his father would build on a room because they'd use the common kitchen area. In other words, these families spent a lot of time together in a common space, but they would build on a room for them. They wouldn't build a house for them, they'd build a room. That's why Jesus said, in my father's house there are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. So he would build this room onto the family compound, onto the family house, and his father would tell him when it's ready, go, is it ready yet, Dad? Can we... Can I get married? Can I bring her back? He goes, no, no, that's just not quite right. We need to make this a little sturdier. We need to work on this a little bit more. We want to make this right. We want to get it ready for your bride. That's the image that Jesus has. And the father would tell the son when it was ready. The father knew when this thing was done. And that's what Jesus said too. Only the father knows the hour when this, these rooms are ready for you. It's just a vivid picture, but you see it in these sprawling houses. And they would spend their time together as a family. They would spend their evenings together. They would spend their, their meals together as this big extended family. And it extended even to the community. Because you saw how closely packed all those little houses and rooms were. There's nothing going on at your neighbor's house that you don't know about. I mean, any of you grew up in a small town? I grew up in a small town of about 5,000 people. And everybody knew everybody else's business. Well, this is like that on steroids. I mean, they know what's going on in everybody's house. Well, the synagogue is the center of this. This is where people would come together. They'd come together on Sabbath, on Saturday, for worship. And the way worship worked in a synagogue, by the way, very much like it does today. It has changed very little in terms of the process. But basically, they would come in. They would have the ritual cleansing. They'd come in, the men on one side, women on the other side. One of the things that they would do is they would bring out the Torah scroll out of the ark. Think of an ark as a cupboard. And that's what they do today. They'll come open up the cupboard. They'll take out the Torah scroll and take off the covering. They'll take it. They'll walk around so that everyone can touch it, kiss it. And, you know, here comes the word of God. And then the synagogues had a, a little seat. This is called a Moses seat. And so they would take this seat, pretty heavy little dude, little stone seat, and they'd bring it out, and the person who's going to read from the Torah would sit in the Moses seat. You remember when Jesus talks to the Pharisees, he said, they sit in Moses' seat and tell you what the law is, and you need to do it, but don't emulate what they do. This is what he's talking about. They're the ones who would sit there and open the scroll and tell you the Torah. They'd set up the Torah readings, so they broke the Old Testament into basically two parts, three parts, but for my purposes, they would break the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Law of Moses, into pieces called a Parsha reading, which still do today, and if you read each week's Parsha or portion, you would read through the Torah in a year. The rest of the Bible, they set up in the same way. You would read a certain portion every week, but it, you would go through it in three years. So every year, you would hear the, if you went every Saturday, you were going to hear the whole Torah read to you 
in the course of a year and in the course of three years, all the rest of the Old Testament as well. Well, what they would do is someone would get up here, they would read, and then they would give a little sermon, and it's called a derashot or derashah, and that's just sort of a little commentary on that. So, for example, and by the way, still do this today. They just call it, it's kind of a sermon today. But, for example, when a boy's bar mitzvah, he will come up and he gets to read at age 13. He gets to read out of the Torah, and then he's expected to give a short exposition or an illustration of what he just read. You actually have heard one of these before, but you may not have realized it. Let me read you this exact process uh, out of the New Testament in Luke chapter 4. This is something that happened in a synagogue in Nazareth. would have looked very much like this. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and he taught in their synagogues, all of them, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. So this is the portion. And it's amazing that God has him there when this is the portion, because you only go through this every three years, right? And so here's what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. He's doing what they do every week, and now it's his turn to give a little sermon, a little derash, derashah. And here's what he says. Then the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he said to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Has to be one of the shortest sermons on record. But what an interesting commentary on that passage. But that's what Jesus was doing. He was just part of their regular worship. He would go in. A lot of times they would ask visitors to do the reading. Whoever was the head of the synagogue, who kind of ran the synagogue, he had the keys, he'd sweep up afterwards, and he would kind of appoint different men in uh, the congregation to read on different days. But when you had visitors, it was very common to invite that male forward to read. You'll see Paul does that a lot. When you read through Acts, you'll see Paul go into the synagogue and they'll invite him to read and then to say something. Well, they didn't expect what they were going to get from Paul, did they? Wherever he launched from reading in the Old Testament, it was going to end with Jesus being the Messiah. And he got kicked out of a lot of places, right? That was not the kind of sermon they were expecting. But that's kind of how it worked in the, uh, in the synagogue. These synagogues, by the way, have this beautiful working. It's just a picture of an arch. They put so much energy and effort into the synagogues. This is a synagogue at Chorazin. And the other thing I want to tell you is what else happened here. Because not only did they worship here, they had a school attached. There's a room. It's not a big area. It's not a school like Crossing School. But on the other side of the wall there to your left was a room, the length of there, and they would have a school. And all the boys in the village would go to school there from the time they were five until the time they were 13. Now, Unlike our schooling, we go to school to learn a skill or a trade 
to learn information, to learn science, to learn mathematics. They didn't do any of that. They went there to learn what was at the center of their community. They went there to learn about God. They learned to read, and guess what they read? The Torah. And they would listen and recite the Torah every day in school from five years old to 13 years old. They would be on the same progression as what was happening on Saturday. So they would go to school as children, they'd go to church on Saturday, and they'd hear it read, and they'd go, hey, I know this. We've been studying this all week. And from 5 to 13, every one of those years, they'd go all through the Torah in school, and they'd hear it every Saturday. And so what do you think these kids knew by the time they were 13? They kind of had heard the Torah over and over and over. And so they understood the Torah. When they were 13, they became a member of the community. They celebrate it now with a bar mitzvah. In other words, it's the acknowledgement that a boy becomes, literally, a son of the commandments, meaning you're now old enough to keep these commandments that you've been hearing over and over and over since you were five years old. And so now it's time to become a part of the community, and you're obligated to keep them. And at that point, the boys would then begin working with their father. I mean, not that they hadn't worked with their father before, but they would enter into an apprentice relationship with him. They would literally go be men, I mean, in the sense that they worked every day. They wouldn't go to school anymore. Now, occasionally there were a handful from about the age of 14 to 18 who would continue and would learn more than just Torah. They would learn interpretation. And this is where the local rabbi of the, of the synagogue would identify those kids that had that ability, and a few of them might actually end up going into and becoming a rabbi. This is what happened to the Apostle Paul. So as Paul grows up in his synagogue in Tarsus, and instead of going to apprentice with his father, he clearly knows how to make tents, doesn't he? Because that's what his dad did. He was a tent maker, remember, from the book of Acts? He knew how to do it, but instead of going into the family business, he stayed for four more years and learned to interpret Scripture. Well, he was such a bright student that when he was 18 years old, he got to go to Jerusalem and study under one of the premier rabbis of the time. He was one of the best and the brightest. Well, that's not what happened with most kids, but you kind of see what's going on here is a great way to uh, basically instill the most important thing in your community, which is God, into your children and into your families. Not only did the community physically revolve around the synagogue, their lives spiritually revolved around the synagogue. Their education revolved around the synagogue. And I want you to think about how different that is and what that implies. What it means is this, who were the heroes for these kids? Father, mother, the rabbi, the biblical characters that they learned about and heard about each week and each Saturday. In other words, they had role models that were very visible. Their grandparents, their aunts, their uncles, the people that they were around, these were their heroes. What did they spend their evenings doing? This was before ESPN, so they had nothing else to do but sit outside and talk around the campfire, right? But that's what they did. They talked to each other about the day. They'd talk a lot about what you learned in school. What are you reading in the Torah? Let's talk about Torah. Remember that passage in Deuteronomy 6 that says, talk to your children about this uh, Torah. That's what they did. They'd sit around over dinner and they'd talk. They'd tell stories. 
dad and mom would tell stories of what it was like when they were kids and how, what crazy Uncle Buck did, you know, when he was younger and that kind of thing. You, you see how they transmitted this community, this family. That's the essence of Jewish life. You see that into the New Testament era, and, and it's just something that we don't think about very much. I mean, a typical night for us is uh, part of the family may be rushing off this way, and part of the family has something here, and Laura's got a meeting she has to be at, and I've got some work I need to do. The kids are over here doing homework, and maybe we'll watch a little TV. Now, we try very hard, and Laura's done a great job in our family to make sure we build and put family at the center of our life. And we have dinner together most of the time. And sometimes the activities suffer for that because it's a choice. You know, what, what's going to be at the center of your family? But you can see how it's, it's difficult for us, isn't it? We have a lot of competing things for our, t for our time and our attention. But we have to be very intentional about putting this in the center of our life. Well... I want to go on to and give you a contrast. We're going to look at another city. I want you to remember what we just talked about, about God being the center physically and spiritually of the community, about community and family being the focus of the community. Now I want to take you to another city at the time that's a little more modern city. We're going to go down just a little bit south to, on this map, it's called Scythopolis. But this is actually, that's a, a Greek name. This city actually had a Hebrew name because it existed again long, long time. It was called Beth Shan. Beth Shan, the house of strength in Hebrew. Beth Shan has, in this whole, this area has been inhabited for a long time. Remember how Megiddo sat at the, at the side of the Jezreel Valley going east and west? Beth Shan sits at the other end. It's also in a very strategic place. There are uh, records of Canaanite uh, burials here, big Canaanite fortifications from farther back than 2000 BC. Clear records of Tutmos III. He was an Egyptian pharaoh. He traveled this far north and conquered all of this area of Canaan in about 1400 BC. And he conquered this area and put a governor there, and that governor's house is still there in Beth Shan. So it's the remains of a pretty nice little uh, palace-type area where the Egyptian governor lived and ruled this part of Canaan in about 1400 B.C., about the time the Israelites are wandering around in the desert getting ready to enter the kingdom. The Egyptians, uh, a little bit before that time, were ruling that area. After the Egyptians, the Philistines conquered this area in about 1100 BC. So that's during the time of the judges, right around the time of Saul. And in fact, a big, big deal from Saul's uh, life happened here, and I'm gonna read it to you. This is the wall. Um, a lot of this is a crusader fortress from much later, but part of this is the original wall of the walled city of Bethshan. Well, the Philistines had this city, and they were fighting against the Israelites. And you remember King Saul, King Saul goes out to fight them right in this area, and it's a, not a good battle for him, and it's in 1 Samuel 31. Now, the Philistines fought against Israel, and Israel fled before them the, on Mount Gilboa. Mount Gilboa is in this area. And the Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons. 
In other words, they're leading the army, and the battle's not going well against them. And so on Mount Gilboa, they make their stand. It says, And the Philistines killed his sons, Jonathan, David's friend, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Well, you, know the, you may know the rest of this story, but Saul basically uh, asks his, his uh, armor bearer to kill him. He doesn't want to be captured and tortured. So anyway, Saul dies there, and it says, The next day the Philistines came to strip the dead, and they found Saul and his three sons fallen dead on Mount Gilboa. They cut off Saul's head, and they stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in all the temples of their idols that they have killed the king and his sons of Israel. They put his armor in one of their temples of Ashtoreth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. And so they tack up his body for anybody to see that, hey, we're the Philistines, do not mess with us, that's the king of Israel and his sons. Story goes on, and, and just a pretty, some pretty brave guys. When the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard of what the Philistines had done, this is a, an Israelite settlement nearby, all their valiant men journeyed through the night to Bethshan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons and went to Jabesh where they buried them. Pretty brave little thing to do in the face of some really overpowering uh, force in terms of the Philistines. But a lot of history happening right here in this area of the Galilee. All the way back to 2000 and the time with Saul and then coming up into the New Testament era. After this, David takes this area. He defeats the Philistines and pushes them back, and Solomon keeps them pushed back over onto the coast, and all this area then becomes Israelite. Through the centuries, it changes hands. Remember I told you the Assyrians come in and conquer. They conquer this area. And then in the time between the Old and New Testament, the Greeks come in, and the Greeks conquer this area. And they rename this city, and they call it Scythopolis. And they, Simply call it that because a bunch of Scythian mercenaries, and that's an area uh, that, the, that these guys came from, they were veterans, and one of the ways they would pay off the veterans is they would give them land and let them build a city and colonize this area. So they took Bethshan, and down below the hill, they let them start a city, and they named it after their home country, and so it's called Scythopolis. So Bethshan for more than 2,000 years, and then it becomes Scythopolis. This is a panoramic view looking down off the top, down into what's below of the ruins. All these ruins are actually found pretty recently, but imagine all that area just covered with dirt. They found this when they were getting ready to build an apartment building. And so you talk about tough to get a building permit in Israel. You can't tell where you're going to dig and find something like this. And as soon as you find it, everything stops. And so they begin to excavate. They think they've only excavated about 10 to 20% of this city. But what you're going to see is marvelous. It's unbelievable. This is a Greek city. And what I want to do is I want to show you, and then, of course, the Romans occupied it, and the Greek and Roman city is what's here in Jesus' time. Now, remember I told you that the big city, Capernaum, had 1,000 or 2,000 people? 80,000 people lived here. I mean, this is a big city by our standards. It was unbelievable by Jewish standards, just completely unbelievable. But I want to show you a little bit about how this place is laid out because it's an interesting insight into a different culture. So you saw the synagogue, houses all around it. 
Synagogue is the center of life. Community and family are the focus of life. I want to show you what this place looks like. Looking down on it, you can see this huge street down here. And you, you have to, the ruins around, there's a temple on the right. It's just a huge thoroughfare. It's got marble pillars. And that's interesting because marble is not native to this area. What you saw in all these villages are basalt. That dark stone is basalt. And so they would build out of the local stone. Here, they paved their roads with the basalt. And they imported marble. All these columns, all this working that you see are, and matter of fact, here's a little better picture. That's Laura standing by one of those white marble column heads. And you can just see how intricately worked they are. On the right is still a street made of those stones. And they're just tons of these streets. It's a very urban-looking setting there. And in this city, the way it's laid out is very interesting. It is not built around a synagogue. It isn't even built around a temple. It's built around a city center called the Cardo. And the Cardo is where Main Street, right, and your major north-south street cross. Every city has one. We call it downtown. Right? Every city's got a main street, and you'll find an intersection downtown, and that's where all the businesses are. That's where the courthouse is, and you'll see a movie theater and whatever, but it's the downtown. This place has a downtown, and I'll show it to you in a second, or at least what remains of it. But this place, this, the houses are out in the suburbs. They're not really close surrounding it. The city is the center of what's going on here. And there are all kinds of interesting things. One of the big things in a Greek and Roman city is called the gymnasium. The gymnasium, we, that's where we get our word, and now it's come to mean just a place to do sports. What a gymnasium was in those days, it's a huge complex. In fact, the complex of Scythopolis is the largest one of these found, I believe, in the Roman world. It is huge, big, open places. They would come there. Think about a combination between a country club and your health club and where you would go to do entertainment and hear lectures down at like the Civic Center. It's all of that wrapped into one. So you'd go there and you'd exercise. You'd go there for the baths. You'd go there to hear lectures. It was a social hub of the city. They had some interesting things there. Anybody guess what these are? Latrines, indoor plumbing. Now, you're a Jewish boy coming out of, a, out of a Nazareth or coming out of Bethsaida. You've never seen anything like this before. You know, it, uh, it's just amazing. They had a big room. There were indoor latrines. And a really pretty ingenious little system for doing this. But I'll save that because I think you've just eaten dinner. But it's really interesting engineering in these latrines. Let me show you the bathhouse. The bathhouse... Uh, it was a big deal. People would go in, and in the bathhouse, you'd go from the cold water to the warm water to the hot steam rooms. You'd be scraped off. I'd put olive oil on you and scrape you off. And all this time, you're talking. You're having massages. Everybody's naked. That's just the Greek and Roman way of doing things. By the way, this is one of the reasons that Jews found it so hard to enter into Greek and Roman culture. I don't mean to be indiscreet, but when you're naked in the gymnasium, it's obvious who the Jews are at this time. 
circumcision. Uh, seriously, it was, you got to really think about how big a cultural gulf there is here. Very hard to join in this culture. This is the uh, hot area. Those little stone uh, pillars that you see, imagine a floor on top of that. And there's slaves outside tending a fire, and hot, hot air is coming underneath that. So you either have a dry sauna, or if you put some water, pump some water in there, then you have a steam room, you have a wet sauna. That's this part of the baths, just huge, extensive area. Well, this was one of the centers for socializing and for life at this time. Let me show you another center of this city. Oh, by the way, beautiful mosaics. I mean, this is just really well done. I, that isn't going to impress. Well, it ought to impress you. That's pretty impressive uh, for 2,000-year-old remains. Just imagine that painted with color. When you see these ruins, by the way, you think, wow, how drab. Imagine all this stuff painted. It's just long, long gone by the weathering. This was, not only was it amazing and huge and unbelievably great craftsmanship in this marble, all the statues, all these floors were painted. It's vivid color. They also had a theater. This theater seated about 7,000 people. And this is a beautiful theater. You're looking on there at the theater area. Let me give you a close-up, some pictures we took of some of the areas beside. You can kind of see where Laura's standing there, how big these pillars are. Up, That's the stage of the theater there to your left. And then where the... Uh, actors would come in from. This is off to the right, uh, on the very right of the stage. You can see how intricate this area is. Theaters were free in those times. Entertainment was free. And the reason for it was, and this is really brilliant, the reason to make this free is theaters weren't just there to entertain people, they were there to educate people. All those stories, all those plays, all those Greek and Roman plays that you would go see are giving you messages about the gods. Think TV today. It's exactly the same thing. Television shows aren't just there to entertain you. There's always an agenda. Either I want to sell you something or I want to change the way you think about something. That's exactly what it was here. This was a center of passing along Greek and Roman cultural ideas about the way the world worked. Do you see any family here so far? Do you see any houses? Do you see anything that says the center of this is anything other than that whole social structure of the gymnasium, that whole educational structure of an entertainment of the theater? Some of these towns had a hippodrome, which is for horse racing. Remember Ben-Hur and the chariot racing? So sporting events plays, singing, the gymnasium for your daily social activities. All of this is built around the center of the city. And in the very center of the city is what's called the Cardo. And there is where the Agora was. The Agora is the marketplace. Everything about this city spells money and trade. And the center of the city is where, think of it as the stock exchange. In other words, you go there to buy, to sell, to speculate, to invest. That's the center of this city. You kind of see the picture that's getting painted here, how radically different this Greek and Roman culture is from the Jewish culture. Here, it's not about family. There's so many distractions, it tends to split up family a little bit. Your main pursuit is not 
God, your main pursuit is money and the culture of the time and the priorities of that culture. Your heroes aren't your mom and your dad and your rabbi anymore. You don't know the stories of your family. You're hearing the stories of the gods and goddesses and the myths. It's been replaced, and it tended to fragment family. And you see that today in our culture. Our culture in the whole Western world, and certainly in America, comes from this type of culture. You think about our cities. They are modeled on this city, not on the Jewish cities. That's not true everywhere in the world, by the way. That is our legacy in the Western world. And what do you see happening in our culture? God is not the center of our culture. Money is the center of our culture. What do you see happening to community? People are very transient in our, in our culture. Communities don't have that kind of an identity. What do you see happening to our family? You see a breakdown, huge breakdown in our time of the nuclear family and of that community. In other words, there are two hugely different ways of living colliding here in Jesus' time. And that's the milieu into which Jesus walked. He walked into the middle of a cultural war. And you can literally see it in the geography and in the archaeology. Isn't that kind of cool? I mean, just looking at the two cities, you can tell what's important to this culture and what's important to that culture. And the real danger for us is is that when we participate in that culture, unless we are very, very careful, you not only get the fruits of that culture, you get the gods of that culture. And I would argue that's the battle that was going on in Jesus' time, and that's exactly the battle that's going on in our time, is a battle of two colliding and conflicting cultures. You don't see it in the geography so much, but you certainly see it in the ideas. Questions? Well, the questions I have go back a little ways. Okay. Um, was Paul thrown out of Chorazin? Uh, you know, I don't know if Paul preached in Chorazin or not. Paul tended to actually go the other way. When, after Paul had the Damascus Road experience, he goes out into the desert. He ends up back in Tarsus. They take him to Antioch in Syria where he teaches. He goes to Jerusalem a couple of times, and then he and Barnabas are sent off to go to the Gentiles. So I'm not saying he was never there, but that's not where Paul preached. He took off into uh, the rest of the Roman world. And wherever there was a Jewish part of the city, because the Jews had been spread all over the Roman world, there'd be a synagogue in those towns, but I don't know that Paul ever preached in that town. Guarantee you Jesus spoke in, in the synagogue in Chorazin. Okay, and that's the next question, a couple of questions I'm going to put together. Um, when Jesus spoke in the synagogue in Nazareth, in the passage you read, would that have been him speaking there as a member of the synagogue and that would have been his time? Or was he there as a guest preacher the way Paul would have been in the other synagogues? Yes, very likely that he was there as a home, uh, hometown boy comes home because he'd been out preaching at this time, and you notice the people were amazed. He'd already been doing miracles, and they were like, wow. And after this, they go, wow, is that Joseph's kid? I mean, this guy's grown up. He's kind of big time. Who knew he knew this much? Who knew he could do this stuff? So he's been out preaching. He comes home for a visit, and they say, oh, look, Jesus is home. Let's have him read today. So he would have been a guest type thing. And then one that goes back 
before tonight, but um, who do we think wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, okay, I'll give you a short answer. Dead Sea Scrolls contain basically two kinds of documents. One are copies of books in the Old Testament, okay? So they were copying those. And so those are scripture that were written, you know, by the various people. You know, Moses, uh, traditionally, the Torah is ascribed to Moses. So they're copying those. The other set of documents are scrolls that had to do with that community and was, were written by people in that community. Not necessarily in that community at that time, but over the past few hundred years. For example, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls are the rules of the community. It's sort of like our bylaws, our charter. So obviously that community wrote that, copied it, copied it. Those are the rules of being a member of the Essenes, of the Qumran community. Some of them were copies of uh, apocryphal or other books that were written a couple hundred years between the two testaments that they would read and they would study. Uh, others were apocalyptic things. Uh, there's a war scroll, for example, that talks about how they think the end of the world's gonna shake out. So those were written by people we don't know, but probably people who were part of that community. And then the scripture, of course, they were simply copying things that have been around for a long time. Good question. Okay. Well, the, the point I'd like to make here is this area of Galilee. I mean, when you read the, the Gospels, you kind of think about Jesus moving around from village to village. I want you to understand how small they really were. But they all looked the same. In other words, they all looked the same. Next time, we're going to finish this series in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was even bigger than Scythopolis. And so the Jews would go there for their pilgrimages, and that was a huge area. But you notice, it's actually organized the same way as those little villages. What's at the center of Jerusalem? Temple Mount, and the temple. Instead of a synagogue, you've got the temple. God is literally at the center of Jerusalem at that time. And then you have the houses, same kinds of houses, all around that area. You see that same culture. As Jesus comes into contact with the Greek and Romans, which he did, by the way, Jesus didn't just hang around in Galilee. He didn't just go to Jerusalem. He went over to the coast of Phoenicia, which those are uh, you know, very foreign people. Remember the woman at the well? You know, she's uh, a Jew, but she's living in a non-Jewish land. He goes into this area, which in those days was called the Decapolis, the area of the Ten Cities. In other words, it was a very Roman and Greek area of the Galilee. So he comes here, and he's walking those areas, and he's going to teach. He's bringing that collision of cultures. And I guess the message I would say to you is, is it's so vivid when you see it that the very, the very way things are laid out, and I would argue for you and me, if I looked at your calendar or you looked at my calendar and my schedule, that'd be sort of like looking at the city layout here. You could probably tell what's at the center of my life by looking at my schedule. Something I've said a long time, if you let me look at your checkbook and your schedule, I'll tell you what's really important to you. We can all tell that, can't we? Well, that's our current model of that geography. If we'll look at the geography of our lives, if you will, we'll be able to tell what's at the center of our life. What, what's our focus? Is it family? Is it commerce? Is the center God? Or is it the priorities of the culture? And just as Jesus literally physically walked into a different culture, you and I move in that same thing today. You come here and you say, and, and I believe that, that this is what we're about, 
is that God is the center of my life. We built this place not to impress God, not because we're trying to build a really, really nice place. We don't have columns that look as nice as those. That's not what we do in 21st century America, but we do build a place that can become a centering place, right? It's a place where we gather, and I hope that our churches, not just this church, but all of our churches become kind of that center of our lives, and then we move from here, and you go out to Scythopolis. You go out into a culture that's laid out differently, that priorities are different, that commerce is at the center of it, and you're going to go interact with that culture the way Jesus interacted with that culture. So whether you lived in Israel 2,000 years ago or Oklahoma City today, it's exactly the same journey. It's exactly the same battle. And the geography and the timetable and the schedule are really tell us what's at the center of our lives. Well, next time, we'll finish our journey. We've, you've seen the southern desert, you've seen the Shephelah, you've seen the Galilee area, and you'll notice how religious, by the way, this Galilee area is. And I'm going to tell you why Jesus, the rabbi from Galilee, where every village has a big synagogue, goes to Jerusalem and clashes with the religious elite of the time. And so next time, we'll visit Jerusalem, kind of end our, our uh, story there. Thank you, guys.